Welcome to Middletown Centre for Autism podcast. And today I'm speaking with Dr. Peter Vermillion. Peter is founder, director, lecturer, consultant, website developer, secretary, light bulb replacer, catering and logistic employee of Autism in Context. Here in Ireland, we would call Peter the chief cook and bottle washer of Autism in Context. Peter is also senior autism lecturer and consultant with Autism Central. Peter is an internationally renowned speaker and we're delighted to have had Peter speak in Ireland and Northern Ireland for Middletown Centre over the years. So Peter, you're very welcome here this morning. I hope things are pleasant in Belgium as they are in Belfast today. They are. It's a sunny day. So Peter, I'm going to extract some of the broad themes from your webinar that you provided for us. Your webinar was on the subject of promoting fun, leisure and happiness. And you mentioned in your webinar that outcome measures for autistic service users may not always reflect happiness and quality of life. Can you expand on this a little bit? Well, yes. Well, what I see in research and also in all kinds of treatment plans and education plans is that we still tend to focus on functional outcomes, things that society in general considers to be good outcomes, such as being independent in your living, having a job, uh, being connected to other people and have a lot of friends, being healthy, all those things that uh, society seems to value. Now, in, in some way, it's okay to have these as the outcomes we're aiming at when we work with uh, individuals on the autism spectrum. But I think there's something lacking there. Okay, I think if you have a job and you get well paid, that, that could indeed contribute to a quality of life. But the, the functional outcomes to me are only half of the story. What I often see is that there are autistic individuals who, according to the traditional outcomes, such as being independent, having a job, would score very low and would be considered to have a bad life, but some of them are actually pretty happy. And so that's when I thought there isn't a direct link between functional outcomes and happiness. We're missing something here. And how can we improve then, Peter, on measuring these outcomes? Well, I, I think we should still measure the outcomes because I think it is important that we get as many individuals as possible into a job and into independent living because um, th this, there's also an economical aspect of this, of course. But we shouldn't have that as the priority in our goals. We should have quality of life and happiness first on the EIPs and on all kinds of plans we make because, and that's something that we learned from happiness research in general, so not only for autistic individuals, but what uh, happiness researchers discovered is that it's not the most successful people that are the happiest people, but it's the other way around. The most happy people are the most successful ones. So I think in, if we want indeed autistic individuals to become more independent and, and to be more competent in, in job skills, to be uh, having better social and communication skills, maybe we should focus on their well-being first, because that's something that I think many people will acknowledge. If autistic people feel well, they will be probably a little bit more social and more communicative. And this has nothing to do with autism because this is true for all of us. You know, what about non-speaking autistic people? Happiness is quite an abstract concept. How can we measure and promote 
happiness and well-being and people who may not be able to communicate that particularly well? Well, there is a difference between not being able to speak and, and not communicating. Um, of course, with the people who can speak and who are verbal, we can use all kinds of questionnaires that do exist, questionnaires on quality of life and, and happiness and life satisfaction. For the group that is not speaking, non-verbal, well, they communicate their well-being as well, but through their behavior. So I think with that group, it's particularly important that um, professionals and parents start working together as a team and make a kind of a dictionary, um, a quality of life dictionary for those people. And in that dictionary, it mentioned that, okay, based on our experience, and that's why it's so important that parents and professionals work together here, because two know more than one and three know more than two, that in that dictionary, for instance, it says, we have noticed that if that person is making that sound, for instance, I remember a girl, she was humming, and we thought that meant she was in pain or not comfortable until the parents told us, oh, that's what she does when she feels very good. So, you know, that kind of dictionary, making that kind of dictionary will help us to see whether an autistic person is having a good day and is feeling well or not. So it's not because those people cannot talk that they cannot communicate about their state of, of well-being. And it's up to us to do assessment, but this time in terms of behaviors. Peter, you've developed your own assessment of happiness and well-being. Would you like to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, what I what I did is, uh, actually, it's a very funny story where it came from. For many years, I've been doing this two-day workshop on stress management in autism. And I developed a stress survey, a stress questionnaire to be filled in by parents and professionals. It's a very long questionnaire um, asking people about all kinds of possible stressors, such as sensory things that could cause stress, social things that could cause stress, activities, people, and so on. At a given moment, I started to think, but Peter, this is, this is not a good thing because the only effect I have is that parents and professionals filling in the questionnaire get a bit of depressed themselves, and that's the last thing autistic people need. So I thought, why, why don't you make a U-turn and, and tra transform any every item, sorry, every item on the questionnaire from a negative one to a positive one. And that's the good feeling questionnaire. People can find it on my website. It's for free. Um, it exists in many languages. And what I'm asking here is you can do it together with an autistic individual if that person is able to reflect on his or her own levels of, of well-being. But for, again, the group that is uh, non-speaking, it's something that parents and professionals could start filling in. And that's maybe what they can do in order to make up this personal dictionary of behavioral signals of well-being. I love this idea of a personal dictionary. When we think that so many of our good autism practice approaches are based on the person and on the individual needs, I think that's an excellent way of looking at practice. Yes, because it's, it's impossible when it comes to happiness, it's impossible to say general things. You know, what makes you happy, even if we both don't have autism, what makes you happy is not necessarily what makes me happy. So how could it then be that we can make general statements about what we need to do to increase the well-being of autistic individuals. Okay, they all share the diagnosis of, of autism, but they are unique individuals. So actually happiness plans should always be individualized. 
Now this podcast, Peter, will be listened to by people in Ireland and Northern Ireland. So if anyone is going to use your assessment from your website, would you be interested in getting some feedback back on that again? Oh, yes, absolutely, because I try to keep on improving things. And sometimes people say I miss this or that in the questionnaire. Or sometimes they say this is too too many questions that could be summarized in a more general one. So any feedback is always welcome. And together we can improve these kind of things because they're quite new. Uh, there is no research on it, but it's not because it's not research that together with the community, we cannot um, improve the tools we all want to use. So happiness isn't an end in itself. You mentioned this earlier. It fosters further positive experiences. Yes. Um, for the moment, I'm also making happiness plans for autistic individuals and for parents, for the children. And, and one of the things that I've learned is that if you want to become happy, the last thing you need to do is trying to be happy. <laughs> because the more you will try to be happy, the more you will be uh, disappointed that you're not there yet. And happiness can become an obsession and in, therefore even the source of being unhappy. But what happiness is, is doing things that give you a good feeling at that moment. And just as you have a, the so-called vicious circle of stress, you also have the virtuous circle of happiness. That means start doing things that make you, that give you a good feeling. And in the end, it will be contagious. They will lead to an increased base rate of well-being. And that increased base rate will make you do more positive things. So don't try to, to become happy. Start doing things. This idea of a happiness plan, I really like it. How do you go about doing that? Well, what I do is I ask people to fill in an, an extended questionnaire where I ask for interests, for strengths, but also where do people live? For instance, it makes a difference if you live in the middle of a big city than if you live on the countryside in order for me to think about activities that could promote happiness. And what I then do is um, based on 10 evidence-based strategies that we know that that increase people's well-being. For instance, one thing always to start with is physical exercise and routines. Those are two well-known and evidence-based strategies to become more happy and to increase your well-being. So based on that questionnaire, what I do then is um, apply these 10 strategies, but individualize them to the person. For instance, if somebody likes dogs, one of the things that I then suggest is why don't you go out and walk a dog of the neighbors because sometimes neighbors don't have time to walk out the dog and if you like dogs go out and walk out the dog for the neighbors they will be happy that you will do that you get your exercise and you will feel more purposeful and that can even be done by autistic people who are non-speaking if they like dogs and walking for instance those are the kind of things that we do and so you see happiness is not it's not something big it's all about little things that we need to do that give us a good feeling. And it's the pileup of that positive experience that we call happiness. So you've mentioned this intriguing concept of 10 evidence-based ways of increasing happiness and well-being. Where can we access those? Um, not for the moment yet, Fiona, because, oh. uh, yeah, I, here I have to frustrate uh, <laughs> a lot of people. I know that this is new. This is, I had, I had some spare time during Corona because suddenly all my presentations were canceled. So I had to do something to keep myself busy. And, and what I did is 
for the first time, I tried to translate these evidence-based strategies into concrete things. But I'm still doing tryouts for the moment. Hopefully, I will be able later on this year or the beginning of next year to come out with something that people can use. But for the moment, it's still experimental. Um, I'm gathering experiences. I'm, I'm writing plans and I get feedback for the people I write plans for. And it's called the happy project. And once I have enough experience, then I will come out with something that will be able to be spread out there. So I ask a little bit for patience here, Fiona. Well, maybe that's a being patient, I think, is probably a good part of well-being. That's the the, the, the strange thing about happiness. It, it can become addictive, addictive not having something and you want something. And once you have it, you're unhappy because you don't have the next thing. So being patient is actually a good strategy to yeah. become more happy. So the inevitable question, Peter, and you, you use this term, building up the base of well-being and building up the base of positive experiences. Can you just give us some ideas about how we can start to do that? Well, as I already said, two things I always ask people to start with is building healthy routines during the day, doing things that are good for your health, your physical health, but also your mental health, and that you can build up in a routine, such as going for a walk every day, having something healthy for your breakfast. Take five minutes relax time after lunch. It's small things, routines, because certainly when we talk about autistic people, what I see as the biggest source of stress is uncertainty. So I think many people know about the importance of having a predictable life. And that does not exclude surprises and doing other things during holidays, for instance. But the basic level of security is actually the first step. So predictability, um, something that many people know that is important in the autism world, it is important not just to tell autistic people what will happen, but it is important because it will give them a feeling of safety and security. And you can only start doing activities that increase your well-being when you have a base rate of security. So that's where you start with day schedules, with with giving predictability and building up um, healthy routines during the day. In your webinar with us, you talked about different types of activities and how we can structure those. And I thought it was an interesting way of looking at things. Can you explain a little bit more about open activities and closed activities? Well, this connects to what I just said. You know, a lot of activities that we offer in terms of, okay, these are activities that are fun to do. They give us pleasure, could increase positive experiences and well-being. A lot of them are free time activities that are open-ended. And open-ended means there is no clear and predictable end. Let me give an example. Going to the pub with friends, that's an open-ended activity don't know when it's going to end. Well, before, and I don't know how it is now over there in Ireland and Northern Ireland, but you had a closing hour. Uh, we still have now during to COVID-19 measures. Actually, that's very good because then it's a closed activity. You know, it's going to end that, you know, even with a closing hour, okay, how many drinks you will have, what you will talk about, that's all open-ended. Another thing, for instance, let's say, let's go for a walk. How far? How long will this stay? Um, you can jump on a trampoline, which is actually good. That's physical exercise. But how many jumps do you have to make? So what we see is that autistic individuals, although they like the activity, it doesn't give them enough good feeling because there is no clear ending. 
predictable ending. So therefore, what I proposed in my webinar for you was try to make open-ended activities closed. Closed means that the autistic person can see how long something will take and when it's finished. For instance, making a puzzle, you know when it's going to end, when all the puzzle pieces have been put together. So by making open free time activities more closed, we can make we can increase the pleasure of it. How can you make an activity closed? Either by, for instance, using time timers, but you can't put a time timer to everything. But what you could do, for instance, is, and I gave the example of walking or cycling, you could um, have boxes around in the neighborhood, eight of them, and then you give the autistic individual, um, for instance, eight objects and he or she is then supposed to go and post them in the boxes. And he or she in advance can see how long the walk will take or the cycling by the number of objects. And you don't even need to be able to count just seeing that, oh, there's only two or three. That means that we're going to have a short walk. If there's more, we're going to have a long walk. And my experience is, and this is something that we already know from the 70s and the 80s, that making open activities close, more close, so more predictable in how long is this going to take, that that increases the, the well-being and also the motivation for autistic people to engage in those activities. Really nice ideas there, Peter. So really, we've come to the end of our conversation. Thank you very much for all of that insight. I, I just want to ask you one personal question, if it's not too personal. What are the activities that you enjoy that increase your base rate of happiness? Well, there's a couple of them, and I'm willing to talk about it. When I was 45, I sold my motorcycle. And that was a big surprise to many people, because that's typically the age, the midlife crisis, where you start buying a motorcycle. And I sold mine because I thought, okay, I, I love motorcycling. I, I would still love to do it. But I thought I'm missing some physical exercise here. So what I'm doing right now is I'm cycling instead of motorcycling. Another thing that I do is a daily walk with the dog. Very predictable. Um, you would say very boring. Gives me a kind of a good transition from work free time. And then, of course, the pleasures that being the grandson of brewers the pleasure of having a good beer. <laughs> a good Belgian beer. <laughs> a good Belgian beer. So I, I admit that's also one of my guilty sources of pleasures. <laughs> it's good to know. I'm a keen dog walker myself. So yes, I, I totally appreciate the benefits of, of getting out with the dog. Peter, thank you so much for your insights and for sharing a little bit about yourself as well. I look forward to your new project and I look forward to whenever the world settles down again to welcome a new back to Ireland. I'd love to come back. The Middletown podcast is released every Friday and is available from Spotify and from the Centre's website. And next week I'll be speaking with Dr Patsy Daly on the subject of her book, Small Changes, Big Differences. Mm-hmm.